standard issue for all women. All right, Mickey here, asking, how is it October already? And also, will I ever understand time and how it works? Big questions, big questions. This week's Sunday Chops, which I welcome you to, and in which I chat with journalists Moya Lothian McLean, looks at an even bigger question. How much has slavery directly or indirectly created contemporary British life? Yeah, it is a huge topic that Moya investigates via her brilliant, nuanced, painstakingly researched podcast series, Human Resources, now on its third season. And yeah, I know I've just explained what good journalism should look like, but it is sorely lacking a lot of the time these days. More on that in just a minute. This is a massive topic, so obviously Moya and I don't cover everything. We've only got half an hour. But we do talk about why it's so important to distinguish between the US and the UK in matters of racism, the connections of race and class, women slave owners, who were much bigger in number than you might think, why the political is so personal to so many of us when it comes to this period of history and its effects, and why ever smaller identity boxes with no connection to each other are not useful for a solid society. A little extra note about Moya, who is officially badass. Not long after I chatted with her and following Lawrence Fox and Dan Wharton's shit show on GB News, Moya was on Sky News as part of a discussion about misogyny in the media with another male guest. At least that's what Moya was initially told the chat was about. Then a minute before broadcast, she was told it would actually be about free speech. Despite this, she nails it. And then in the kind of moment you couldn't make up, her opposite, Connor Tomlinson, who had just argued the pay gap was a myth, chastises her for saying she's exhausted at having to explain sexism in the media when she's being paid to come on the programme to discuss it. Mic drop, turns out Moya is not being paid, but Tomlinson is. Moya later wrote she had confirmed Tomlinson had been offered a fee to appear on Sky News and she had demanded the same amount which she's donating to Beyond Equality, an organisation that runs programmes educating young men on rejecting patriarchal culture in favour of positive masculinity. Well done. Yeah, excellent. So yeah, I didn't get to chat with Moya about all of this because it hadn't happened yet. Uh, I feel it would have probably derailed our already very, very interesting chat. But consider this a high five for her and do give her a follow on the socials at McLean because that was not her first rodeo and I doubt it will be her last. Right, back to the British involvement in the transatlantic slave trade and what that means for us all today. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Moya Lothian-McLean, former political editor at the sadly folded Galden magazine, and now on a journey to discover the truth about human slavery and the British involvement in the transatlantic slave trade in her excellent podcast, Human Resources, which is now on its third series. Moya, hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me on Standard Issue. Oh, thanks for coming on. Let's start with you telling us a bit about you and your heritage and why you wanted to explore this very, very big society-encompassing subject. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent way to put it. British history of involvement in slavery isn't just something that's, you know, siloed off or at a distance. It really is. The entire society, as we know it, was involved in the slave trade. And to go back a few years, I think it was mid-2020, I got a phone call from Renee Richardson, who was the head of a podcast startup called Broccoli Productions. And I'd met Renee doing other bits and pieces, including a uh, podcasting training course run by Spotify for women of colour. And Renee gave me a call and she said, look, 
I've got this project that I really want to do. It's looking into the British slave trades. Do you have any interest in exploring this at all? Now, I wouldn't take up a project unless I actually felt that I had a personal connection some way to it, because mm-hmm. I think that makes narrative storytelling, you know, 10 times better. And for something like this, I, I wouldn't want to do it unless I felt that I was someone who really could bring some, perhaps a different perspective to the project being put in front of me. I'm mixed race black, so I have a white British mother. I have a black Jamaican father. So I feel like I'm really a child of empire, whichever way you look at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Something I don't know much about is my Jamaican heritage. Now, for people who are uninitiated, Jamaica was obviously a slave colony, a pretty big British slave colony. Modern Jamaica today is almost entirely shaped by the British impact on that country. And I didn't know much about my history. I didn't grow up knowing my father. And one of the ways I've tried to fill in these gaps is through, I guess, learning about history itself, broader history. So if I don't have that connection to a personal history... I can at least try and understand the broader forces that were at work. And human resources meant that not only could I do my favourite thing ever, which is exploring underrepresented stories, especially throughout history, but it also meant that I could go back and fill in those gaps through this podcast. So that was a personal reason why I really wanted to do it. I think the political is so personal for so many people regarding this huge matter, right? Well, absolutely. And very quickly, I I learned that, you know, this wasn't something that could just be siloed off into my Jamaican history. This was something that was British history. I think that an aspect of the podcast that Renee especially has been so clear on from the get go, this should not be pigeonholed as one specific type of history. Often people say, you know, this is black history. No, it's it's a history of literally every... (laughs) Every demographic you can imagine that is related to the history of the slave trade, because it was a world trade, it was a global trade. And if you are connected at all to Britain, your life in some way will have been shaped by this trade, which emerged in tandem with the economic systems we have now. It created so much of the way we conduct ourselves economically, and it set up the stakes, essentially, of so many different countries for the geopolitical issues that we still continue to have today. Absolutely. And it feels particularly vital, I think, because it does feel like we hear a lot about the US experience, like that what America's experience of blackness, and that is absolutely vital as well. But it differs to the British experience and to British history. And it feels like as Brits, we don't really know our history. Yeah, 100%. And something I used to think about quite a lot, which I thought was an amazing theory I'd come up with myself, but uh, it turns out a lot of people had already <laughs> already come up with this theory. But I, I was really interested in why expressions of racism differed in the US from the UK. A lot of the things that you'll hear about, the way that racism kind of insidiously gets into our institutions in the US is it's very overt. There's a different, the racism there is practiced sort of really overtly. Whereas if you talk about Britain, people are like, well, you know, it's, it's a sneakier type of racism. It's the thing you can't really put your finger on, but somehow you know it's there and you can see it when you bring up stats about, you know, economic inequality between different ethnic minority groups. But it might not be something as overt as in America where you, you, you could hear, you know, you see a policeman shoot dead a black man in the middle of the street. We still have that here, but on a different, yeah. it's a different level, you know. And something that I thought about quite a lot was the fact that America, the slavery, the plantation slavery took place in America. So 
the south of America, it's sort of scarred into the land. It is really scarred into that history. Whereas Britain, we distanced ourselves from it. Mm-hmm. So we pushed it over to the Caribbean. We pushed it over to these slave colonies. And it meant that, you know, in the telling of history now, we can still distance ourselves from it. We can say, well, it happened over there. This is why we wanted to do this podcast, because we wanted to show how embedded it was through every sort of level of society. And not just that, but that it is vital to understand where we are today by going back into the past and that, yes, it is a very shameful history that we have, but only by opening up to the light can we start even healing that wound in the first place. We have to look at it head on. You're absolutely right. And and there's a double distance there because it's not only, oh, it happened over there, but it's also it happened 400 years ago without taking into account how it has shaped us. And you mentioned it earlier as well, when, when this does come up and it's not on the curriculum, it can be taught if a school chooses to teach it or a teacher chooses to teach it when it should be on the curriculum. But when it does come up, it's taught as black history rather than British history. And it's not always taught at all. And it's so important to our understanding of who we are and why we are. Yeah, exactly. And that's also another thing that we've done with human resources. I really try and emphasise when we're doing this podcast or when I'm interviewing people that we want to bring out the sort of personal stories. Because the thing that makes me feel most connected to history and most alive is when I'm in a, you know, not so much a museum setting, although interactive ones can do it really well. But when I'm in some sort of setting and there's some sort of detail, like when I went to Pompeii, for example, the thing that really brought it to life for me was seeing the graffiti on the walls. Uh Because that is that sort of off-the-cuff evidence of humans who lived, breathed, shat in that space. That's it's sort of the grubby little details that bring it to life. And so in this podcast, there's one episode that we do about women slave owners in the Caribbean, because this is a history that has been sort of doubly invisibilized. You know, the history of women is very under-researched in some areas. Really? Really? Can you believe that? Um, And I think, but the way that we tend to frame it is this idea, and I talk about this in the podcast, this binary of the oppressed versus the oppressor. Whereas women slave owners, that is such a complex, contradictory position to be in because those women, you know, would still be living under a patriarchal society, but they would also be engaging in this dominating practice and this capital, this way of building themselves up socially at the expense of others, both men and women. So it's this position that's really fascinating. And one of the ways we open that episode is by using a written passage from Christine Walker, who we interview in the episode, her book, Jamaica Ladies. And it's this really striking image of this woman called Elizabeth Keyhorn who's sitting at her desk in Kingston, Jamaica, writing out her will. And she is a former slave. And in her will, she is leaving her slaves that she now owns to her son. And I thought that was such, you know, just a really visceral image that would take you right there. Suddenly you're in Jamaica, you can hear the sounds of the spices being unloaded. You can hear the sounds of slaves being unloaded. And there is this old woman who herself has experienced slavery, sitting at this creaky old desk, leaving enslaved people that she now owns because she's got this position in society now. She's built herself up to her children. That episode is astonishing and you've jumped ahead for me. I'm pleased. We're going to jump jump ahead. It's fine. It's called Girl Bosses and it is an absolute doozy. And I listened to it with my mouth open looking very attractive, like what the fuck? And women made up 40% of slave owners across the Caribbean. That number is mind-blowing. And as you yeah. mentioned, as pair with anything with women, it's kind of new that this is coming to light, isn't it? I think it's new to us as a mainstream audience. What I want to pay 
tribute to is the work of these amazing academics that we interview on human resources who've been doing this for years. So what might be new to me is, you know, they've spent years and years and years in the archives and we talk about this in the episodes. There is a part two about women, slave owners that's coming out next week because we're looking at both sides. So we look at the, the women who were in Jamaica because women slave owners were actually less likely to be absentee slave owners which is very fascinating. Mm. And then the episode that follows it looks at the women who were absentee slave owners and their experience back in Britain. Like you say, this history is something that's just coming to light maybe for us or just starting to filter through the podcast networks that we have. But these academics have been working on it for years and Christine Walker talks about the fact that these trails were always there. The evidence was there. You just have to look harder for it. She's been, you know, she went to Jamaica, she dug through those archives, she spent hours in there and she knew sort of what she was looking for so and she had this motivation to do it whereas I think the histories that we're often presented with in the mainstream maybe in the past have been written by people who don't have the same motivations or the the people who get the most attention don't have those same motivations but that is the one good thing about the diversification that has come with the likes of the internet and all these different niches you may have less of a monoculture and you also may have knowledge that is technically valued less because if you can access everything, then knowledge, what, what's the price of knowledge? But at the same time, it has come with the ability of if you want to seek out that person who's been doing this work, they're probably out there. You just have to go and find them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's like there's loads of things that we could go into there because it's such a rich topic. But the fact that history has mostly been written by men until relatively recently as well. So women haven't been research also women are harder to research because names change a lot more and we kind of get lost in patriarchy basically but there's something that Christy says on the podcast which I was like oh my god that's horrifying but it's also kind of understandable and she says one of the ways that the people who had been enslaved could demonstrate that they were free was to have slaves like that demonstration of freedom exactly and I think that's such a pertinent example that she brings in she it perfectly sums up the what slavery was you could never free yourself from this system of slavery which is entangled with capitalism unless you were oppressing someone else and there's something i think about a lot when we talk about narrative i read this really great book on narrative structure recently called into the woods by john york which i think every person who writes is told to read at some point in their lives and it says in this book that at some point there's a there's a bit in the narrative where our character or a person speaking, this applies to fiction, non-fiction, sums up exactly what the entire point of this entire thing is. So if you look watching Sex and the City, for example, I've watched this really recently and I think it's a really good example. Charlotte goes at one point, what if we were each other's soulmates? And it's like, that's the whole point of the series. That's what if we were each other's soulmates. (laughs) And I think Christine saying that, you know, the only way that these women could demonstrate that they were free or these formerly enslaved as well, because men did it too, were free is by buying other people, by oppressing other people, by dominating other people. That's the entire point of this podcast. That's what we're trying to show you about slavery. Yeah, it's so (laughs) horrifying, isn't it? But just like, oh my goodness, I can see that there is a, a logic there, but it's a horrible, twisted logic. There's the complete analogy, obviously, today. If you look at the system of capital we live under, the only way that you can really make X amount of money is at some point you're going to have to exploit someone else. And that's not going to change under this economic system. This economic system, where was it created? What did it grow with? Slavery. Absolutely. Capitalism isn't money. Money's just the thing that we exchange. It's human. It's human resources, totally. And that is not a concept that has gone away. And 
I mean, don't come to me asking Francis as to how we dismantle capitalism, Maya, because I don't have them. <laughs> I wish I had them, but no. If anything, I think it's getting more. You say in the trailer for Human Resources, you mentioned footballers and you mentioned like the Kardashians and using yourself as a resource and then how that is picked up. And they're used as resources from companies. And it's like, this is a horrible, vicious cycle that there, there seems no way of breaking. Anyway, well, I mean, the, yeah, go on. <laughs> I was about to go into full political rant then, but we can move on. We can move on. That's for another podcast. <laughs> So you have incredible guests. So I think it's worth pointing out to our listeners that you are the host and you clearly really know your stuff and you clearly really do your research, but you're joined by expert guests each episode. And so you are learning along with the listener, which is really lovely as a listener, actually, because your reaction kind of mirrored my reaction in lots of ways. I wondered what stuff has blown your mind? Uh, honestly, every episode. Every episode. And I, I also do want to pay credit to the amazing research team we have at Human Resources who are credited at the end of every episode. This is fully a team project. So I, I script it and then it's edited by Renee. But we have a team of researchers who are saying this is the best guest for this. This is the best person to talk to. It's It really is a team thing. Um, in terms of things that have blown my mind from this season, God, that's actually so many. <laughs> I do think girl bosses. I think Girl Bosses and the next episode in Absentia are two that have really stood out to me. That example of Elizabeth Keyhorn for one. There's also an example in the next episode that I don't want to reveal too much about, but we talked to Dr. Hannah Young, who's a historian of gender, and she mentions this example of this one woman called Dorothy Little who lived in Bristol. And Dorothy Little is applying for compensation for the slaves that now that the slave trade has been abolished. And one of the things she does when she's applying for this compensation is she really uses, as Hannah says, this gendered language to talk about how vulnerable she needs. And Hannah did this quote in the episode, which I'm going to read out to you now, which Dorothy Little says, it's quite inconsistent with the character of the noble Englishman to reduce aged widows to beggary by forcibly taking their property from them. And when she's talking about property there, she is talking about people. And Hannah mentions the names of these people. There are three women called Sally, no, four women called Sally, Lucy, Betty and Nancy. And Dorothy Little's using this idea of like vulnerable, victimised womanhood to argue for why she needs compensation for her property. And her property are other human women. That's fascinating. Having recently listened to Girl Bosses, which is the most recent episode as we're recording, listeners, that Christine talks about her book, Jamaica Ladies. And it's because... The, the people, the women who owned the plantations and were slave owners in Jamaica were kind of not seen as ladies because they were doing something that was uncouth and vulgar and not of a woman. And yet I imagine the women who are in absentia, who are over back in Britain, are seen really differently. That's, oh, that's fascinating. And again, horrific. Can I just caveat that everything I go, that is fascinating. Also, I'm terrific. Anything else that has really surprised you that you weren't expecting? Oh, um, do you know what? There's an episode, there is actually so much stuff that's really surprised me. There's a very good episode we've got coming up on Ireland, which is obviously not part of Britain, but we go a little further afield to cover that. Talking about the Irish involvement in slavery in Cuba, something I knew nothing about. That's a really, really interesting episode. There's also one we've got coming up on Clapham, 
and there's a church in Clapham, which if you if you followed any sort of documentaries, historical research on slavery in recent years, this church is very famous. It's called the Holy Trinity because it was a site where both abolitionists and reformers worshipped. So you had this real in-person conflict, but not even a conflict. So very civil to one another, but sort of uh, juxtaposition of people fighting for the abolition of the slave trade and people who were arguing for the defence and the protection of the slave trade. Uh-huh. And what's most interesting about the episode is not even these two sides, but the similarities in thinking that powers both of their causes and yet how different a turn it takes. And it's really parallel to some of the political situations we have now, especially the way they interact. They're very civil to one another. They're both powered by similar motivations, but they express themselves in different ways. And they're all part of this really wealthy merchant class. And they're all sitting in parliament because they're these really wealthy merchants or they come from wealthy backgrounds or they're landed gentry. And it's really funny to see how they take different sides on this. But the the whole structure that's behind them is very rotten because it is basically just putting the fates of people in the hands of the extremely wealthy and hoping that some of them have the moral morals. conscience. Yeah, they're hoping that they have enough morals that they'll fall on one side. And some of the things that they even the abolitionists do you know they're not arguing for the abolition of the slave trade these white abolitionist reformers because they think that black people should have equality that black people are equal to white people they're arguing from a particular christian viewpoint where they think that slavery is impeding the ability of black people to engage in the church yeah (laughs) yeah with christ they're like you know having to work on a sunday that means they can't engage with christ William Wilberforce was not some great racial equality um, activist, as we'd call it today. He was, you know, very racist in his views, but he still fought for the abolition of the slave trade. And there's this real complex contradictions that we want to explore. It's like, I I think having those discussions and understanding who people really were, a lot of people, again, shy away from that because they think it means, you know, automatic cancellation. But I think it just shows how complex people are as political animals. And that helps us understand ourselves today. You know, people fall across a spectrum when they have political views, there are people that I am, you know, aware of who call themselves left, but they have views on certain things that are very right, similar to right-wingers. There's a fascinating contradiction that people hold. And the more that we understand that, the more that we could actually maybe get ourselves to a better political place. I don't know. Let's just, let's see what we're thinking about that. Here she is with a nuance. <laughs> it's never going to catch on. I love it. And I really love that about the podcast, actually, because it can, I know people feel really like hectored even when they're not being hectored at all. But this this podcast is a joy to listen to as well as enraging because it is so nuanced. You're interested, you're asking questions. And it is this whole thing of there are 400 years of history. People have descended from all sorts of things. There's a mix of heritage in, in so many of us in this country. And you've touched on something there that comes up. And it's um, in the first episode of the third season, which is called Inventing Race, your guest expert is writer and historian Subhadra Das. And she says, oh, my God, I was like, ooh. She says, class and race are basically the same thing. Race is what happens to people in the colonies. Class is what happens to them in the British Isles. And I was like, fuck me. That is, again, <laughs> that sort of summing up of what was going on. And this distinction that we've get now got, uh, because this was also very interesting, how race has become the term it is today and what it means today. So I've got Irish heritage and she talks about that shift from Irish being considered non-white to being white. And as you've just touched on, like also being involved in slavery. But yet this shift to marginalise certain people was just insidious, wasn't it? 
Yeah, and I think that episode also, you've done your homework. I really appreciate it. <laughs> you made um, it easy by being very listenable, so thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, that episode is, again, one of my favourites because Subhadra, the way that she articulates simple things about, I don't know, the binaries that we've got today surrounding things like race. One of the questions I ask her off the bat because I bang on about this all the time is like, look, is there more than one race? And she's like, no, thank God you've asked that. There's there's one race and not to be corny, but like it's the human race. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's something that I think nowadays it's fascinating to see, and we talk about this the episode, how ethnicity, which is different to race, has been subsumed into this idea of race and how much race has been adopted as a legitimate classification and a fixed and binary classification even by the people that it marginalizes. Mm-hmm. And this idea of a racial identity has become such a, a so so central to an idea of self. I used to always be like, I'm mixed race. What does that mean when I say I'm mixed race? For me, I automatically was like, obviously it means I'm white and black. What does that actually mean when we dig down to it? What is white and black? Why was mixed race automatically synonymous with white and black? Like, what, it, it doesn't make sense when you think about all the different combinations that you could be if you talk about yourself being mixed race. But yeah, so but lots of us grab onto it because we live in a time when differentiating yourself and having this strong idea of just like totally, I'm a total individual and this is me. Like I, I don't know where I these trousers and I'm this racial identity and I'm this gender and that's, you know, we have to have so many sub like trousers. categories. We, we mix, we mix consumer um, tastes with mm-hmm. things oh, like, totally. you know, this taxonomy of race. It's fascinating to see and the fact that we cling on to, you know, these like, DNA tests that we have now. Why are we trying to boil ourselves down into specific ethnic groups i get it but it's it's totally to do with this idea of self and the way that we construct the self now and i don't think that is a good path to go down personally it's not useful is it it's not useful i don't think it's healthy or useful i absolutely agree with you it kills nuance again it's it just becomes everyone's in their separate boxes separate boxes exactly is and the boxes keep getting smaller is the problem it's not that the boxes are being used to build together you know commonalities and similarities and coalition political coalition across lines the boxes are being used to keep us divided that's how i see it yeah maybe they're not boxes maybe it's like we've sliced ourselves into filing cabinets and we're in all those files like separated yeah totally now then uh well you're gonna love this i've got a huge question it's basically what you've done a whole three series of podcasts about and that is how much has slavery directly or indirectly created contemporary british life oh I mean, do you want a percent? <laughs> do you want a percentage of how much slavery? Slavery is capitalism. It, cre- it helped create the systems of capitalism. It was the mechanics through which capitalism embedded itself. So I would say the impact is almost immeasurable on British life. It was the thing that powered the empire. We wouldn't be where we are if we hadn't had those mechanics in place and in the first instant. So it is difficult for me to measure the exact impact but i just think it's impossible to understand like this as the series covers everything from the railways to our scientific developments were in some way embedded with this idea of project of empire and the project of empire was at first slavery it changed and it moved into other forms once slavery was technically abolished but slavery was the thing that established the british empire in the first place in places like the caribbean i think the nhs is a perfect example of this that we use in the episode on medicine which is our NHS was built off the backs of the Commonwealth migrants uh-huh. post-war. Who were the Commonwealth migrants? They are the descendants of the slaves. Why were the slaves there? Because we enslaved a lot of people across the Caribbean. 
And also in India, which we haven't even bothered touching on yet because it's such a huge topic, but we're mostly focusing on the Caribbean in this. But someone someone pointed out the other day, they were like, I'd love to talk about British slavery and indentured labor as well in South Asia. Yeah, That's a whole other series to do. Maybe not even for me, but it's a topic that has, you know, it's, diff- it's impossible to measure the extent, but I would say almost 100%. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree with you. And it makes it hard to have these conversations because it covers everything but it's so important we have these conversations and like I say I think you know I'm not blowing smoke up your ass I think your podcast does it absolutely beautifully I would like to see these conversations happening in schools I chatted to the women behind the black curriculum a few years ago and they were amazing and they're still fighting and it's still not on the curriculum I wondered where else you would like to see these conversations Oof. I mean Good question. I would like to see them again, not siloed off into this idea of like, you know, black history or, and I love the black curriculums work, but I, I think it would be something that I'd want on the national curriculum. And one of the things that brings me great joy is when teachers get in touch and say, human resources has been a great resource for our kids learning. Because when I was doing history at university as well, I used to listen to podcasts. That was how I revised. It made the information going easier than just reading. Um, where else would I want to see these conversations happening? It's really hard because obviously in, in the political life, you say you want to see these conversations, but they are happening. They're just happening in a manner that upsets me yeah. in a, <laughs> to my very core. So it's more about how would I like to see these conversations conducted? And I wish they could be conducted with the nuance and space that we're allowed to have in, say, a documentary or a series like Human Resources. But that is also the joy of the creative world. We have that space to do that. We can create those sites where we can have a nuanced conversation you know i'm not arguing with someone on twitter when i'm writing a script for human resources i'm saying what i want to say and i'm saying it in a nuanced way and if people want to get in touch and talk to you about that they can but we then we can have a much more constructive conversation than simply putting out a 280 character tweet that will be definitely misconstrued and taken out of context this is this is the ideal space to initiate the conversations it's just i don't know exactly where we should be continuing them because i think a lot of discourse in public life doesn't have a space that we used to we mostly have social media rather than having these really like constructive sites like i don't know these some community spaces like libraries you could go to or you go down it'd be a regular thing to like go down a community hall and have these like evening lessons or classes etc but those sort of i mean they probably still happen they do still happen but those sort of events i think have had a drop-off in attendance or because of fragmented you know, communities due to changes in housing prices and the sort of urban shifts we're seeing. It would be really lovely to, you know, be able to recreate that, but that comes with a strong social infrastructure. So I think it's above my pay grade, sadly. Yeah, and, you know, not even on our government's radar. Like, that whole thing of the wealthy people and expecting them maybe to have some morals. So how is it working out for us, guys? Not brilliantly. <laughs> Human Resources is from Broccoli Productions and available from all good podcast apps. It's great. Have a listen. Like, listen to ours. Listen to them. It's great. I really loved it. Moya, where can people follow you and find out what else you're up to on on the socials? Sorry. Oh, God. I'm so sorry, guys. You can follow me on Twitter at McLean, or you can follow me on Instagram. There's a lot more pictures of me in bikinis there. I'm really sorry. Don't be Uh, sorry. Moya underscore. (laughs) There is, on my stories, there's a lot of content 
relating to my job. So it's, it's a real higgledy piggledy mix. That's, but that's why that's I've been a out person, to new projects, though, right? That's a person. That's what we are. And I think, as you mentioned <laughs> it's earlier, a it's, it's a person. It's helping us to see people as individuals, as, as instead of as part of that bit of filing cabinet. I think that's really important in having these conversations. That's true. If you want to, if you want to catch me in my bikini while posting <laughs> about the latest panel I'm doing, that is on Instagram. Um, but yeah. I've got some new exciting stuff coming up soon that I think people who like human resources will also like. So keep your eyes peeled. Oh, she's teasing us. I love a tease. I love a tease. <laughs> Do check out where Moya is. And Moya, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much. Standard Issue for All Women.